Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, why are flu cases in the state double the national average? Hear from medical professionals on the need for vaccinations and other safety precautions. Then, a March of Dimes study says too many Mississippi babies are being born preterm. Find out the risks for infant mortality and ways to avoid it. In our book club, a notorious murder in Natchez 85 years ago garnered national attention for its bizarre elements. A conversation with Karen Cox about her book, Goat Castle. And later, meet the Mississippi artist whose creations will be featured on the national tree in the nation's capital this holiday season. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's rate of flu cases is double the national average, according to the University of Mississippi Medical Center. According to the Centers for Disease Control, influenza activity begins in the months of October and November and peaks between December and February. Annually, more than 200,000 people are hospitalized due to complications from the flu, and the majority of those are over the age of 65. In order to reduce the spread of the flu during the holidays and long after, experts say flu vaccinations are still the number one way to prevent development of the flu. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier activity is increasing. We are now getting into the time of year when we expect to see uh, more cases of flu throughout the state, certainly more transmission of flu uh, in the state. And from our surveillance, we are seeing some increases in flu activity. Uh, in Mississippi right now. And tell us, what are the symptoms? You know, the symptoms of flu, because it's a respiratory illness, are primarily going to be a cough, uh, sore throat. Uh, Typically, fever is going to be associated uh, with influenza as well. But, you know, it can also make you feel very tired, very fatigued. You can have muscle aches. And, you know, um, for most people who get the flu, it can make you feel pretty bad. So the flu isn't something that you can go to work and still function. You really need to be in bed. You definitely don't need to go to work uh, if you have the flu or think you have the flu uh, because that's one of the best ways to transmit it to your coworkers. The same goes for, you know, if you're a parent, don't let your children go to school um, if you think that they have the flu because, you know, schools are great incubators and kids share everything. So, That also is a great way for flu to be transmitted. So, you know, our recommendation is is if you have the flu, don't go to work, don't go to school. Is it too late to get a shot? It is not. You know, we, we recommend you get the shot earlier rather than later. But really, it's important to get the flu vaccine at any point during the season Uh, As long as we're seeing flu being transmitted, you want to make sure if you haven't gotten the flu shot by now to go ahead and see your provider and get it. How long does it take for the flu shot to take effect? Well, you know, it's different for each individual, but but generally speaking, it takes about two weeks after you get the flu shot to make sure that you have enough immunity against it to prevent infection. So when you start getting these symptoms, is there any way to keep it from becoming full-blown? You know, if you're going to get the flu, you're going to get it. But I'm going to tell you there are some folks that are at higher risk for having more severe infections. 
and those are certainly the folks who the the children who are who are under five, individuals who are over the age of fifty, especially over the age of sixty five. Those are where we tend to see most of the complications that can occur from influenza. But we also see people with underlying chronic medical problems like hypertension, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, um, any of those kinds of chronic illnesses can also lead you to have a more severe infection with influenza. But there's some good news with the shot. If folks are um, get the flu vaccine, then um, they may still get the flu. But for those people who are at high risk, getting the flu shot cuts way down on their risk of complications from influenza. And that is a very important point that we want to make sure that people understand. Can it, you know, escalate? You know, you, you can. Uh, for, for most individuals, um, flu can make you feel really bad, and, it, and it's, a, it's, it's an illness that makes you feel horrible, right? But most people recover from flu without any long-term problems. Uh, some people, especially those people at higher risk for complications, can develop uh, a viral pneumonia, a secondary bacterial pneumonia. Uh, flu can lead to hospitalizations. It can lead to deaths, especially in those extremes of age. And if you are a caregiver for somebody at high risk, it's important for you to get vaccinated yourself because you can reduce the risk of transmitting it to your loved one. Well, Dr. Byers, thank you so much for speaking with us about this. Absolutely. According to doctors at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, 699 children and adults have tested positive for the flu since September 1st. Coming up, a March of Dimes study says too many Mississippi babies are being born preterm. Find out the risks for infant mortality and ways to avoid it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 13.6% of babies in Mississippi are born too soon. That's according to a new study from the March of Dimes. The national organization is concerned with infant mortality in the state and is giving Mississippi an F letter grade for the number of babies born prematurely. Dr. Charlene Collier is a Mississippi spokesperson for the March of Dimes. She says about 37,000 babies are born each year in the state. Less than half are born to women of color, yet their children make up more than half of the babies born preterm. But the cases in Mississippi across all races is higher than the national trend. In addition to race, Collier says income, education, and other social determinants of health are an indication of risk for preterm births. Dr. Collier tells MPB's Ezra Wall the numbers are not getting better. Unfortunately, preterm birth rates are worsening in the United States. In in 2016, we saw the preterm birth rate go up in 43 states and only improve in four states. So unfortunately, this has been a this is a trend across the United States to see the preterm birth rate increase in this last year. So that is alarming and really disappointing to see. Mississippi gets a letter grade of an F. Why is that? Uh, Mississippi gets a grade of an F because we have the highest percent of preterm births for our number of births in the country. So our preterm birth rate is now at 13.6% of our total births. 
So that is the highest in the country. So we get an F uh, on our report card, which is the grade we've been getting for the recent past. And that highest preterm birth rate in the country is, of course, very concerning. And the fact that it is increasing is, is going in the wrong direction. And it's something that we all as a country and as a state of Mississippi should be very concerned about. What constitutes a preterm birth? So we uh, measure a pregnancy in weeks. And any birth that takes place under 37 completed weeks of pregnancy is considered a preterm birth. We use the term now full term um, for babies that make it to 39 weeks. But anything less than 37 weeks is considered preterm. Um, so that is the rate that we are looking at for Mississippi, and we did see that number go up a little bit from 13% to 13.6% in 2016. Why is it important to carry a pregnancy all the way to full term? Babies who are born preterm are at risk of suffering significant complications. In fact, the leading cause of infant death in the United States as well as Mississippi are complications related to being preterm. So when a baby is born too soon, its lungs are underdeveloped, its brain is underdeveloped, it is simply not ready to be in the world. And we have made many medical advances to try and keep babies alive who are born preterm and prolonging their life, but they can still face great complications in terms of their, of their brain development, uh, visual development, um, and they're at great risk of, of death even if they survive that initial period after being born early. So preterm birth is a significant public health problem. On just an individual practical level, what can a mother do or what can a family do uh, to help an expectant mother have a higher chance of carrying that baby to full term? One of the first things is planning your pregnancies. When pregnancies are planned, meaning a mom and, and our partner are wanting to become pregnant, they're at a lower risk of experiencing complications. Another is being as healthy as possible when she becomes pregnant. So addressing chronic medical conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes and getting uh, healthy visits and annual exams to ensure that a mom is healthy before she becomes pregnant is, is one critical thing that can be done. Reducing exposure to tobacco is also extremely important. So that goes beyond just the mother herself. So many moms will quit smoking when they become pregnant, but then she'll live in a home with everyone in her family smoking. And that still puts her at risk for having a low birth weight baby or a preterm birth. So quitting tobacco use, uh, alcohol, and other drugs are really critical things that can be done to reduce the risk of preterm birth. Another important thing that can be done is if a mom has already had a preterm birth, we do have some treatments that can help reduce her risk of having another preterm birth. On a societal level, what policies can we enact to help reduce the risk of preterm birth rates? Women need to have access to good medical care very early in pregnancy. So it's always a very hot-button topic about medical insurance, but over 60% of births in the state of Mississippi are covered by Medicaid. So having those programs available for women and having Medicaid available for low-income women in particular really keeps moms and babies with the access they need to early, high-quality pregnancy care. Another policy level is our tobacco laws. Mississippi is progressively working on reducing the number of public spaces and workspaces that 
people can be exposed to tobacco and policies like increasing uh, tobacco tax and making it harder for young people to begin smoking uh, can have an impact on, on things like preterm birth. We've been speaking with Dr. Charlene Collier, who's speaking on behalf of the March of Dimes about uh, this year's state grading on uh, preterm birth rates. Dr. Collier, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. The full report card is available at marchofdimes.org. Coming up in our book club, a notorious murder in Natchez 85 years ago garnered national attention for its bizarre elements. A conversation with Karen Cox about her book, Goat Castle. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Award-winning historian, writer, and public speaker Karen Cox is adding a new book to her long list of publications. Set in Natchez, Mississippi, it's called Goat Castle, a true story of murder, race, and the Gothic South. The professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte covers events that drew national attention in the 1930s. Critics say it's strange, fascinating, and highly entertaining as it tells the story of a local feud, killing, investigation, and trial amid an all-too-familiar story of racial injustice. She tells us more about the course of events. August 4, 1932, in Natchez, Mississippi, just a few months after the first pilgrimage, there was an attempted robbery that went wrong at the home of Jenny Merrill, and Jenny Merrill was shot and killed that evening. Her body was removed from the home and tossed in a thicket about 100 yards from the house. Within a few short hours, the sheriff went to uh, interview the neighbors, Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery, because they had long been feuding neighbors because of trespassing animals, hogs and goats. And so he felt like the, the feuding had gotten very serious between Octavia and Jenny Merrill, so uh, he thought he should go over there. And when he did, Dick Dana walked down the stairs, and the first thing out of his mouth was, I know nothing of the murder. <laughs> at this point... What murder? <laughs> yeah, at this point, Jenny's body hadn't been found, and uh, so he immediately was arrested, and and, uh, and so was Octavia Dockery for something she said that we'll never know, but apparently in, in their conversations with her, uh, she was also implicated. So they arrested the pair of them, took them in uh, to jail, and that's that's where it begins. This guy named George Pearls had come to Natchez uh, in the summer, so he's looking for work because it's the Depression. He walks over to Glenwood, where Octavia Dockery and Dick Dana live, and he, he it's very obvious there's not going to be any work there because they live in absolute squalor. He talks to them, and I, I believe that there's a conversation, and they decide that they think the neighbor has money. They kind of hatch a plan that they will rob her at a particular time of the evening. And what happened was she put up a fight. She didn't hand over any money willingly, and uh, she ended up getting shot. This became a national story. Why? Natchez is a small town in Mississippi. Why did it garner national attention? Natchez had already gotten some attention, uh, national attention, for the pilgrimage because it drew people from all over the country. And so the national attention initially had to do with Jenny Merrill having been the daughter of the former ambassador to Belgium uh, under Ulysses Grant. 
also because she was a descendant of the the elite of the planner class in Natchez. And the fact that this town that basically sold itself um, as the epitome of the Old South also drew attention. But what really got the attention was that Dick Dane and Octavia Dockery, who were the ones arrested, the conditions in which they lived in just absolute squalor and the fact that they kept a pen of goats inside of their house, this is what attracted people's attention. It was a bizarre story, a gothic story, and they gave jailhouse interviews that kept the narrative going. Dick Dana was declared non-compass mentis. He had a lunacy hearing in 1917, and Octavia was his guardian, so he was really of no use to her, except that that property had been his inheritance at one time. They're never able to pay taxes, but they just become squatters in this old Annabella mansion. The house was already in, in deplorable condition when they had moved in in the teens, and it just continued to go into worse and worse condition. Neither of them had any money. She was going to just operate a small farm there where she could sell eggs and milk and, and things like that from the property. But why they kept the goats in the house, along with an, a bunch of other animals. There were cats. There were hens making nests in the old library. There were geese running around. I mean, it was just Bizarre. absolute filth. <laughs> absolute filth. It was sort of like a hoarder's episode, but 1932. Do you know if the people of Natchez now are familiar with this story? Is it common knowledge? What people in Natchez um, know about about this story is the, the story that's been repeated over generations. And the more it's repeated, the more that people get erased from the story. So that it's become, at this point, just about Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery and their goats. The book is called Goat Castle, and we've been speaking with its author, Karen L. Cox. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. As we enter the holiday season, a Mississippi artist's interpretation of the state's culture and symbols will be on full display in Washington, D.C. Teresa Haygood is from Jackson. The glass mosaic artist says she was delighted to submit her work, capturing the essence of Mississippi for a national audience. She tells us how she was selected. The Mississippi Arts Commission, which is our state arts agency, got together and asked if I would be willing to participate this year. And, of course, I was ecstatic and said yes. So you didn't even submit something. You you were just chosen because they knew chosen. your work. They know my work, and they've seen me, you know, at Chimneyville, and I'm a fellow in the Craftsman's Guild, and I think they've just been familiarized with my work. Do so. you describe yourself as a mosaic artist? I am. I'm a mosaic art, a glass mosaic artist. Karen, it's kind of interesting. I started with stained glass. Uh, so I was doing a lot of the, you know, the windows and the, you know, a lot of metal work along with and, you know, cutting the stained glass and fitting it and all that. And I just had been saving all the extra scraps for years. And finally, of course, the the pile was just too big. I decided to try to do something with it. And, of course, mosaic was sort of a natural choice. Explain to our listeners how this works. This isn't just one big Christmas tree. There's the national Christmas tree, mm -hmm. but then there are other trees, right. one of which is showing your ornaments. That's right. So there's one uh, large tree on the ellipse, which is just south of the south lawn of the White House, just on the other side of the fence. And so it's a huge live tree, permanent. And so then a 
around that tree on the um, pathway of peace is what they call it. Um, it's surrounded by 56 other trees, smaller trees, that represent uh, one for each state and for the six territories. And your ornaments hang on the Mississippi tree, tree, right? Our tree. How many ornaments did you make? Twelve in total, and uh, the globes themselves were provided by the National Park Service. Oh, of course, that—that's the organization that coordinates uh, this event each year. Does um, everyone have to incorporate globes into their ornament? They have this uh, shape as a standard for everyone. So all of the participants in each of the states and territories would receive the same box of clear plastic six-inch diameter globes. And, uh, you know, you can understand I was a little shocked when I opened the box and saw that they were so big. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to get going now because it's going to take forever. Your ornaments are not the same by any means. So tell us about them individually. It was really tough to narrow down the subject matter. I feel like we have so much to offer uh, in Mississippi as far as you know, our artistry, our culture, history, topography, location, everything. So it was very difficult. So I just started with the first thing that came to mind. We're celebrating our bicentennial this year. Let's go with a bicentennial ball. So that's that's really where I started. You know, the name Mississippi is uh, featured on one side. I think it kind of looks like a old world stained glass window in a little yeah. bit of a way. But that's the the font that is used in all of our printed material mm-hmm. and um I thought that would look neat to to incorporate kind of a little fancy style. So you have the dip in the S's and um, just a little bit of an oval shape to it. And then on the back side of that ball, which you can't see, is 1817 to 2017 oh. actually written out. So And then the little outline of our state. When the light hits it, you can really, it really sparkles and shows off that inner color. So that I see a, a magnolia on one of these. Of course, these. that was the next one. You, you're really <laughs> picking them right, Karen. The, the magnolia was the next one that I I did. So on um, one side is the actual flower blossom. Uh, on the opposite side, because I just, you know, I couldn't just stop with one side, even though that's probably all that people are going to see when they look at it on the tree. I wanted to have it be a 360 design. Mm-hmm. On the back, it says the Magnolia State. So that would be a little bit clear to people that are coming and seeing the balls and might not know uh, what our state flower is. All of those are made with glass. I mean, the writing is glass, the illustrations Everything glass. is built out of small pieces of glass that are coordinated based on shape and color, glued down, and once finished, then grouted. So just like you would see your tile in, ba- in your bathroom or shower, oh, it just uh, they just glow. I, it's just amazing. I've never designed one of my Christmas ornaments like this on clear glass, so that was a whole new feature for me that added a whole other element to it. Have you been able to see any of the other states represented in the ornaments? Online, you can go to the nationaltree.org. Actually, it's uh, the nationaltree.org, and there's a link within that page that you can go and view uh, the ornaments from years past. So, of course, I wanted to see what other states had done, and the options really were tremendous. I mean, some people decided they would do their design on the inside of the globe, and they had kind of little, you know, three-dimensional figures or a little, you know, snow scene with, uh, you know, a cityscape or, you know, whatever they decided to feature. Well, it's a really exciting venture for you and for all of us, I think, in Mississippi. Oh, it has been. So, Teresa Haygood, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for having me. 
Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.